Hello, everyone, and welcome back to As We Like It, your favorite podcast in which we watch and discuss movies based on and or interpretations of the works of William Shakespeare. I'm John. I'm Avon. And I'm Mark. And today we are discussing the 1991 film, My Own Private Idaho, written and directed by Gus Van Sant, starring River Phoenix and Keanu Reeves. This movie is loosely uh, an adaptation of uh, Henry the fourth part one and two with a slight bit of Henry the fifth slight detour into Henry the fifth. Yeah. Yes. So I chose this film because uh, I've been hearing about it for 10 years and mm-hmm. had just never gotten around to watching it. I'd heard that it was kind of Shakespearean and it seemed, you know, like a good opportunity to a watch the film, but B be able to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think all of us are coming to it for the first time. So yeah. right off the bat, um, there are things about it I liked, things about it I didn't like. I think a lot of it is just what was edgy and independent filmmaking in 1991 is pretty dated by this point. Mm. Um, so I think kind of pacing-wise, I found there were moments where it would just kind of cut away into these testimonials where it would be other characters who were speaking uh, well, background, uh, it, it recasts the story of Henry IV, parts one and two, as uh, the story of two male escorts who are kind of down and out on their luck in Seattle and Portland and occasionally Idaho and <laughs> bizarrely Rome. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, it cuts to these kind of testimonials where it's other male hustlers, sometimes actual real male hustlers, telling their stories, um, which I understand is to kind of situate the the experience in some sort of context, I guess. Yes. But narratively it made the movie feel a little bit detached to me. I, I haven't quite decided what I felt about it, but I found it really quite a interesting movie to watch. Mm. And I really found the way it used Shakespearean stuff quite, um, intriguing, uh, semi inexplicable, but, but that not from a bad perspective just very odd but i i thought it was really interesting and um i found you know i found parts of it funny and parts of it moving and yeah i enjoyed i'm glad i watched it on the whole yeah i thought it was quite a good movie um you know i i wouldn't say it's necessarily my favorite to watch of the movies that that we've seen just you know just for the pure pleasure of watching it but i thought it was one of the the most interesting adaptations like what it does with the material mm-hmm. yeah exactly and so kind of fundamentally it's the story of these two men these two escorts whose names i one of them is mike and i can't remember the other one scott scott the heir scott. apparent is yeah. scott yes. yes so mike is played by the late river phoenix scott mm-hmm. is played by a very young keanu reeves well not actually as young not as young as he looks he was what 20 oh, really yeah Okay. Yeah, but that makes him our first repeat actor. Yes, that's right. He he did much ado only two years later. Yes, even though Um, it's a very different age of character. So, I'm going to rely on you to tell me how this fills out Henry the (laughs) Fourth. Basically, (laughs) Um, it's basically the the relationship between uh, Scott and uh, Bob. Bob, yeah, um, is is the the same relationship between um hal prince hal and uh falstaff yeah um and 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 the sort of the the father relationship as well his relationship with his father you know the heir apparent and all of that Mm -hmm. so scott is the equivalent of prince hal who becomes harry the fifth uh henry the fifth and his father the mayor stands in for henry the fourth and Bob is Falstaff and the various characters around Bob are variants on the other sort of lowlifes uh, around Falstaff in Henry the fourth. And that's, those are the points of contact with the plays. And yeah, and I mean, that's fairly obvious as you're watching it. Uh, the character mm-hmm. of Bob is his position's not really clearly delineated. Maybe a drug dealer, maybe uh I don't think he's really a pimp. He's just kind no. of a... I think he's just another guy on the street. He's been a lover of various of the characters, presume, clearly, uh, but not necessarily paying for them 
though it's not completely clear because Mike does say that he, uh, Scott does say that he does he never has sex except for money. So uh, maybe, but they've had relationships in the past. He's just hanging out on the street. He seems down on his luck, as it were, too. Yeah, kind of almost the uh, like the hood father for all of these mm-hmm. cast aside men or boys, mm-hmm. really. And I don't think he's a drug dealer, though. I'm. It's not very clear because in that scene with the drugs, it seems to be just a, his personal stash that's been stolen. It's not like they find a stash that could be that he could be selling. Yes. So yeah, it just seems to be he had some drugs because he managed to score some or something. And those scenes turn into. I mean, they're very theatrical. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like if you watched the movie and you didn't know that there was any influence of Shakespeare, that they would still stand apart as, mm-hmm. as, as different, yeah. unique. Yeah. And then if you, you know, told someone afterwards, like, oh, yeah, this is parts There's of this. Shakespearean are, stuff. Yeah. yeah I, I think it's very immediate what they would be. Mm-hmm. Um, like when, when Bob's character is introduced, he's like walking down the street mm-hmm. and all of the hustlers are sleeping on the tops of various roofs and they're kind of yelling to wake each other up and kind of taunt Bob and share the news that Bob is back. And what it reminded me of was the, just kind of the staging of Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet, the sixties version, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just kind of the uh, playful relationship between the male characters and that, and the Mm -hmm. way that they embody a public space. And, that movie is kind of a touchstone in queer cinema for the kind of the way it sexualizes the men. And Franco Zeffirelli is gay and mm-hmm. Gus Van Sant is gay. So I think that there's, you know, kind of a, a nod to that, a connection throughout. And some of the costumes mm-hmm. for for these characters in this part is also very much, uh, you know, it's flamboyant in a way that is kind of cutting back to or, or invoking our traditional notions of Shakespeare and theater. So what did you... Do we want to talk about the movie as a whole before we move into the Shakespeare? Yeah, um, let's yeah let, let's do that. So the movie as a whole, like I said, there were some things that were a little incoherent for me, mm-hmm. or not inco- incoherent, just kind of tonally inconsistent. I don't really understand why the character of Mar- Mike needed to be narcoleptic. <laughs> yeah, no, there's, um, I, I would say about the plot in general is there's lots I don't understand, and I think that was very deliberate there seem to be just a lot of pieces to the backstory and to the ongoing story and even to the conclusion where they're just they're just not gonna fill us in we're not gonna get it all and i don't like even that very last scene where we don't know who picks mike up at the end at least i don't think we do um there's a lot of stuff that seems just unexplained i mean i guess it's to to ramp up his vulnerability mm-hmm. uh, you know, in case, you know, just the characterization wasn't enough. Um. <laughs> and the situation is in, yeah, as if that isn't, but. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it was to give it a surreality because the whole play of this whole movie, it has lots of very surreal, mm. intentionally surreal aspects. And um, that kind of play with what's real or imagined or memory the narcolepsy, I guess, gives you a frame to move in and out of those pieces because every time he falls asleep or has a has one of his attacks, you get to move. As a, you can have a transition between uh, places or times or real or dream or imagined. That's true. Because, you know, they move from Seattle to Portland while he has passed out. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's and always like... Idaho. Ins- yeah. yeah, but there's always a, a triggering, inciting event, stress, mm-hmm. you know, that causes this. And I, I guess ultimately I felt like there were too many narrative contrivances. And I know at the end of the day it's a movie and, you know, movies mm-hmm. are narrative. But the fact that they kept running into the German guy... Mm-hmm. Maybe you would run into him in Seattle and Portland, but you would run into him in a random hotel in Idaho... Yeah, I I guess when I was watching it, I didn't feel like anything in the movie was naturalistic. Mm. I didn't expect anything to function by sort of real life logic. It just from the very beginning, from, you know, him falling asleep in the middle of a highway in the middle of nowhere, uh, just seemed like it was already just setting us up for nothing in this movie is going to make sort of internal consistent sense. And then the heightened 
all those stylistic bits, which we'll, we'll talk more about, but the Falstaff stuff added to that feeling of this isn't real. And I think those, um, those confessionals you were talking about, or the, the testimonials, um, the effect of that was to sort of remind us that there is a, a reality that this movie is playing with, but not really partaking in. Like there is a grim and, and, and very real reality out there, but this movie seemed to not be that reality. It kind of, in a in sort of the same way that Scott is playing with, with this reality, Scott is playing at being, a, a hustler and a down and out guy on the street, but he really isn't because he has this other life he can go back to. And the same way the movie is kind of playing with this reality that is, exists, but it instead is set in the stylized world where you run into people in the middle of Idaho and you can just fly to Rome, even though Cad knows they can't possibly have had passports. And when you get there, you're going to fall in love, you know, that all of these things that don't make any sense would happen. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately, it is just the narrative of, of Scott versus Mike and mm -hmm. kind of the way that they inhabit this world. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to I'm going to get very deeply into identity politics for a second. Well, I think I, this movie requires that. Yes. And yeah. I mean, I know not everybody likes identity politics, but I think it's kind of necessary to view this movie. Mm -hmm. um, a friend of mine, what he studies is kind of the idea of being queer is being homeless or N never having had a home in a way that kind of society is constructed for you. Mm -hmm. And that was the only thing I could think of when watching this movie hmm. because Mike's character, like he doesn't remember who his mom is or really, well, he remembers who she is, but he doesn't remember how to contact her. Mm -hmm. He doesn't remember where home is. He is, he's homeless, not in the sense that he is living on the streets. He's homeless in the sense that he doesn't have that emotional grounding. Whereas yeah. Scott does Scott, talks to his father sees his father you know the cops relay messages mm -hmm. to him and he chooses to be homeless and mm -hmm. kind of you know they they both end up becoming hustlers as, as a way to enable this lifestyle but it, it kind of culminates in the campfire scene which is the most famous scene from this movie where the two of them are in idaho and they're just sitting at a campfire and they're having a frank discussion mm -hmm. in which you know, this is where Scott says he only turns tricks for money. Mm -hmm. And Mike says, you know, I'm in love with you. I want to kiss you. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's this very, it's, it's simple and it's not overstated, but you know, it was, it was a very effective moment for me mm -hmm. just because I think for me, like part of the process of realizing that I'm gay coming out, all of that is just like, honestly, a desire to kiss somebody. Mm -hmm. um, especially in the, in the gay community, like sex gets fragmented so much because, you know, there are men who have sex with men. There are people who are in the closet who do things. There's random hookups with straight guys. Like mm -hmm. it, it becomes a matter of this... body parts rather than of, of I, I'm, I, I'm speaking from outside, but uh, rather than of, of sort of the exploration of our initial sexuality, the way that it has been typically you know, you kiss, hold hands, and then you kiss somebody, and then you move on to other things. Exactly. So specifically with them, mm -hmm. with them being two, you know, two hustlers, and we see them having had a threesome earlier with, I think his name is Hans, this, mm -hmm. the German guy they run into, like, for them, and especially for Mike, his, his attraction is not in a sexual way. It's like in the wanting to kiss. Mm -hmm. right. So like, in some ways, that is what we culturize as, or what we socialize as the most basic the most innocent form of of kind of romantic expression mm -hmm. but in this case like it's it's kind of the ultimate one mm -hmm. yeah it's much more intimate and much more personal than fucking because they have been doing that the whole movie though <laughs> it made me laugh the only time we see actual naked parts is in the one straight sex scene yeah well it is the 90s mm -hmm. it just <laughs> but i mean the funny thing is not only do we see breasts, okay, fine, but we see his bum, Keanu Reeves, but I don't think we ever see any of, like, the only time we see even the male's body is in the one straight sex scene. It's like, really? Like, you can show his butt then, but you can't show his butt in the threesome scene? Anyway, I was, it, was, it, it amused me. I, I looked into the, the history of this film or, the, you know, the making of, mm -hmm. and it was made f by New Line Cinema. 
um, the studio most famous probably for producing the Lord of the Rings trilogy, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which has since kind of been absorbed into Warner Brothers, I believe, and doesn't really exist as an independent unit. unit. But this was Gus Van Sant's first studio picture. Mm-hmm. And so he was excited by the prospect of, you know, what that kind of distribution means. Right. Um, so he's probably so being think, quite careful. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, what limits do you push because you can't push them all? Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, New Line actually created an independent label and released this film through it. So he oh. didn't get the exposure that he wanted. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, it's too late to yeah. make Well, and, and I mean, uh, of the lines to push, like showing naked flesh is far less important than trying to tell certain types of storylines. I mean, I don't, I don't think it... The movie doesn't suffer from it at all. It just... I noticed it because, you know, it was actually, for all of its graphicness in some ways, was actually quite discreet in its visuals until that one scene. And I thought, wait, why am I? Oh, of course, because there's a woman involved. So we're allowed to see sexy bits now. (laughs) It just seems so obvious and silly. There was a really funny visual moment, probably 20, 30 minutes into the movie, where somebody goes into a porn store and the camera like follows them and then focuses oh, on yeah. the back of porno magazines. And, and then the, the covers, magazine covers talk. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the covers are the characters in the film and they're like talking to each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's never addressed outside of that. Yeah. Well, that's sort of what I mean about surreal and yeah. like no yeah. logic. Like, that's obviously crazy. Uh, you know, <laughs> and they talk about their aspirations and whether they what they want to be and what it is to be mm-hmm. a cover boy and all these things. Uh, it doesn't, but it's sort of like a fever dream or something. And it just the whole movie felt like that, that even the parts that seemed the most sort of realistic and normal were sandwiched between stuff that didn't make any sense. So I didn't, oh, I didn't really yeah. look for internal co- narrative cohesion. <laughs> I mean, like 10 minutes into the movie, they drop a barn on a highway and it explodes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it doesn't explode. That implies like flame. You but know. It, it sort of, yeah, it sort of collapses on itself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that had to have been a huge chunk of the budget. Also, they flew to Rome for like three shots. Yeah. <laughs> <I> <laughs> Not even three scenes. Like, like there were. In Rome, they were only there for, yeah, just that Mike waking up in the Piazza. There were like yeah. two minutes in the Piazza del Popolo. Yeah. And there was like a minute, just single shot, just panning with the uh, Coliseum in the background. Mm-hmm. And then they just had something in. The, the rural countryside outside of Rome, which presumably could have been anywhere if they'd wanted. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. <laughs> and apparently River Phoenix hated flying, so he flew to Rome for that. Oh, really? <laughs> Granted, I love Rome, so... <laughs> Didn't, yeah, not sorry to see it, but still, it was, it was weird. <laughs> so, off the top of my head, I don't have a lot more to say about it as a movie. I'm sure... I will think of other things as we're discussing, but I mean, mm-hmm. do, what else do you have to add? Well, special mention for for the uh, the score. Uh, it just sounded really interesting, um, and I think it adds to that sort of surreal feeling to have that pedal steel guitar, um, you know, re, you know, and and playing certain cues like um, uh, "America the Beautiful" and. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I thought it was a very effective musical score. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, noticed in the credits that they credit the musician and the, but also the particular guitar, <laughs> and that's probably the first time I've noticed in credits actual specific reference to which specific instrument was used for the score. So I thought that was interesting. Mark, of course, would notice that more than I would. <laughs> I actually didn't watch the credits. So. It's, it's quite important to guitar nerds, uh, you know, to know these things. So. Yeah, no, it, it had a whole, like, you know, the credits went through and then it had a whole separate full screen with just the name of the guitarist and the, the make and model of the guitar. Oh, that is really interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, and I, I wouldn't have noticed. I, I said, oh, that's really odd. And Mark said, well, of course. I mean, the score was so important. And I said, oh, uh, <laughs> uh, of course it was. I'm sure I noticed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you see that kind of specificity a lot in kind of, well, it just comes out of the classical music tradition of mm-hmm. like so-and-so was playing, you know, Rachmaninoff on this instrument or whatever. So. Yeah. yeah. But when it's a particular kind of pedal guitar, pedal steel guitar, it's a, it's a little different thing. But yeah, no, I thought that I, the, once Mark drew my attention to it, I think that's true that the score was really important to how the mm-hmm. feel of the movie was. And I thought it was uh, visually very arresting, like 
it, it had the sort of contrast between all those Idaho scenes with the flatness and the emptiness and then the those um, sort of flashbacks to his mother with the sort of Super 8 kind of treated film uh, and then the back and forth between the interiors and exteriors in Portland. I thought it, it, it really continue, was continually interesting to watch. Mm-hmm. It it was really interesting for me to see like an early 90s, which is really a late 80s portrayal of Seattle and Portland, mm. because for me, like specifically within my life and my understanding of kind of the American context, those are cities of like the late 90s and 2000s, because mm. like that's when the tech boom like really yeah. came to yeah. Seattle. And that's when Portland really gained its, you know, Portlandia, fun, hipster, weird, silly vibe. Right. So, yeah, it was just interesting watching a movie set in that part of the country at that time because I just don't really have much cultural exposure to that. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of a it was a very uh, seedy backdrop in general. I mean, of course, because of where they were, but the the not what you think of as Seattle and Portland now. Yeah, I don't. I, I will say that uh, you know, you, I'd said, oh, it'd be nice to watch something not so grim, and you said, oh, it's pretty grim. Uh, one thing that I thought was interesting was, in spite of the subject matter and really the narrative, which frankly, I mean, by the end of it, I guess Scott is fine, Falstaff, uh, sorry, Bob is dead, and Mike is picked up on a is robbed and penniless and picked up on a highway in Idaho by someone. <laughs> I mean, unless I missed something, we don't know who that was. That that long shot at the end was deliberately to make it unclear who got out of the car and picked him up, right? So I read an interview with Gus Van Sant where he said mm-hmm. in the original treatment for the film, that was actually Mike's brother who picks him up. Okay. Oh. So the idea was that Mike, you know, gets a home, right. finds a home. But then he also says that he felt like he had constructed Mike's brother to be kind of a dick. Hmm. Um, and maybe that wasn't right. And he liked the idea of leaving it unstated because yeah. that's really what Mike's journey throughout the entire film has been is he's just floating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he never really has any control over who's going to pick him up or who sort of, sort of a Blanche du Bois, you know, Raoul was reliant on the kindness of strangers kind of yeah. sense to him where he doesn't really ever have any control over what happens to him. And I think that's part of the narcolepsy thing too. Mm-hmm. His utter lack of control is is exemplified by the fact that he can't even control staying awake. Yes. And that's, you know, like I was saying, kind of this weird anti-existence that mm-hmm. is, is part of a lot of people's like kind of coming out and coming of age. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and he has people keep denying him any kind of grounded reality when he meets his father. Uh, go, when they go back and talk to his father, his father gives him two two different stories about what happened to his mother and and won't you know, won't let himself even be pinned down to what really has happened. And then he's told that she's in Rome. And by the time they get to Rome, she's not in Rome anymore. And she's gone back and never finds her. And everybody, no, no one will give him anything to hang his sort of hang on to, to say that this, even if I can't have it now, this was my home. That's what you were talking about earlier. And that, that rootlessness. Yeah. I do wonder because it's weirdly specific to my interest. Like, why Rome? I don't. Yeah. Yeah, there isn't really anything in the play that would no. correspond to that. So and I'm nothing. Not sure. And there's we're not given any idea of his mother that would suggest to her as why she would go there. Like, mm-hmm. there's no backstory. Or the only thing connection. I can think of that's like thematic is now the first sex scene is not like this, but the second and third sex scenes are in that they are very stylized people are just struck in a pose mm-hmm. yeah and it, it cuts between poses mm-hmm. um but it's not a still image it, it's you know it is it is footage of people staying still staying in this still pose. yeah mm-hmm. yeah um and it cut in rapid succession uh the light is very chiaroscuro mm-hmm. uh it, it really reminded me of kind of 16th century italian painting mm. And I mean, there is a lot of homoerotic subtext in a lot of 16th century Italian painting. No, I'm, you shocked me. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the image of Saint Sebastian. Uh, he's 
Yes. Well, I mean, Punctured the arrows. arrows. Yes, yes. Yeah, <gasps> penetration imagery. He's a patron saint of, I believe it is malarial victims. <laughs> uh, but a lot of a lot of gay men kind of adopted him as the patron saint, their patron saint during the mm-hmm. I, the AIDS crisis. Right. For the similar level of imagery. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there may be some some element of that. It's it, it isn't it's one of the many things about the movie that just sort of seemed random essentially. Um, I'm but, not saying they were random, but they, they're they presented in a random way. We're not given the linking narrative that explains us why this happens or that happens. Yeah, but I mean, at the same time, that only adds to kind of the sense of confusion and disconnection that Mike feels. Mm-hmm. And who's to say you can't be multi-textual in your inspiration? You know, mm-hmm. Ron mm-hmm. was multi-textual because mm-hmm. it was... Uh, the story of a Japanese warlord, but also King Lear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and and we'll get onto this in a moment. But this movie was by no means the story of Henry IV. Like no, that, it, that it does not one, describe what the movie is. It has Henry IV too, but, in it. Yeah. yeah. So the last, what I was just going to say though about the movie is, in spite of all of this content and this fact that there's lots of stuff in it that's quite grim, I didn't find it a grim movie to watch. I didn't find it a depressing or you know uh, I'm a I've mentioned this before, but fairly uh, cowardly watcher of movies <laughs> that, are, that are grim or depressing or violent. Um, but I did not feel oppressed by this movie at all. Um, that's perhaps the wrong word to use in this context but <laughs> for me. But, you know, we watched it over two nights and then I was and I was perfectly happy to go back and watch mm-hmm. it more. Unlike, for instance, Ron, which I, I wanted to watch, <laughs> what was also sort of horrified about watching because I didn't know if I could put myself through the second half of it. Um but this one I was perfectly happy to. And I, in fact, went back and watched last night a couple of extra scenes of, of, of the scenes again to check on a few things. And so I, I found it light isn't the right word for it, but um, playful it was, or something, I yeah. guess. Maybe. And yeah. it, it handled the themes in a, in a light way that made them sort of um, not painful to me to watch. Now, that may just partly be because my experience of it is uh, a sympathetic outsider. It's not my story that's being told there, so maybe it's less painful for me to watch than some others. But you know, not that Ron was my story either. So <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, I just wanted to say that about it. the The only other note I have to add is that Brokeback Mountain, which is based mm. on a short story, um, but is set in the foothills you know, or it is, is rural in location it is about a gay mm-hmm. relationship it also prominently features a steel guitar uh, right. for its score <laughs> um i don't know if that's intentional but there come 10 years later there's a lot of distrust or animosity towards brokeback mountain in amongst my friends amongst the people i know for being basically a, a movie made by straight people for straight people to like oh look how sad it is to be gay mm. whereas this movie didn't resort to that level of kind of drama mm. you know it wasn't about the emotional toll mm. it was really about this kind of placelessness mm. well and and i i don't know if this is a true statement but it, it felt like the emotional toll that was being expressed and talked about was also about um you know sex workers and homelessness which of course overlaps strongly with the gay experience but is not exactly the same thing whereas Brokeback Mountain was very much concentrating on what it was to be gay but within a context of like being powerful in other ways having independence and choice and privilege in other aspects whereas here you have a a very you know a complicated because there were other in those testimonials too for instance you have a couple of women and girls who are streetwalkers too um there aren't very many girls and women in the movie but there were a couple um so you know that it it was sort of an interlocking of different kinds of narratives of difficulty and and struggle not only one if that makes sense also as as you say it's not really an outsider's perspective because of who was directing it Hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. um so shall we move on to shakespeare yes sure I don't know. I know you've got some stuff, Mark, but the first thing I wanted to say was I think it's really interesting. Uh, Henry IV, parts one and two, which are the movies, the plays that this is most based on, are, in my understanding, fairly complicated plays for Shakespeare people because there's complications about whether 
their one play or two plays or how they join together and all sorts of things. But they're really um, two interlocking plots, right, Mark? Yeah, though I I gather the that it's believed they were that uh, it wasn't intended to be um, to have a second to have a sequel um, because there's not much left story wise to do in part two. Right. Um, And it basically just rehashes um, a lot of the, you know, same storylines as as part one, Mm -hmm. um, largely driven by the fact that the character just for whatever reason, became immensely popular, Falstaff, mm-hmm. um, to the point where, in fact, uh, he gets recycled not only in Henry the Fourth Part Two, um, but in the Merry Wives of Windsor. Right, where he, though he doesn't turn up in Henry the Fifth, he even though at the Henry end of Henry the yeah. Fourth Part Two, Shakespeare says, "Don't worry, I'm not going to kill him off. I'm bringing him back because I know you love him." In the <laughs> epilogue, and then he does kill him off without bringing it back in Henry V. But what I meant actually was more that the overall plot of both plays, that that's interesting to hear, there's two. There's the political plot and the personal plot, mm-hmm. right? So there's the plot um, of Falstaff and Hal, which is what we have in this movie. And then there's this whole other plot, which is all about Hotspur and revolution mm-hmm. and uh, sort of a, um, not revolution, but a, a an attempt to overthrow the king and attack king henry the fourth and it's a long complicated plot which i skimmed over in rereading because none of it is in this movie and i think what's interesting is that this is not the only place where we see falstaff and the falstaff and hal story brought up i mean i've seen it in other people when it seems to me that when people think about henry the fourth that's the only part of the play that they really take away from it hmm. that the political part about the actual War of the Roses stuff that's going on is not really when people do adaptations or or pick up on this play on the two plays it's this it's the relationship between Harry and Falstaff that is all that people take out of it or at least that's certainly what this movie had took out of it yeah not none of the other plot is in there no well and I mean even though the play is nominally called henry the fourth um he's a minor character really in in what happens Mm -hmm. though as you say there's all this complicated political well there's lots of fighting and there's lots of battles and there's lots of people who are charged with treason and things happen i don't know i didn't pay a lot of attention but things happen to lots of political people in it there's all this stuff about taking over the legacy of richard the third and richard the second of second yeah somebody yeah, so I mean, uh, the, the basic plot, the, you know, things. character point for for um, Henry the Fourth is that he's, in some respect, an illegitimate king because he deposed Richard the Second, mm-hmm. um, and so that's his main sort of character motivation is that he feels um, that he has to legitimize himself or something, um, and this is, I guess, part of the motivation for the. Um, what what prince hal does is he's trying to make himself transform into um a a real king right so he's he's sort of putting himself artificially through a transformation process um to Mm -hmm. to legitimize his his um you know inheritance of the throne which is what in the play makes his concern for his own son's non-kingliness important because if he's trying to legitimate himself and then his line mm-hmm. as proper kings of england the fact that his son is this dissolute well that see that's is, what is that's real, what i'm is saying though is, is yeah. why prince hal puts himself through um, right. this transformation process right. um because he's he he realizes the the problem that his father is having and realizes i mean it's it seems to be calculated right it's not mm-hmm. just that he's uh, slumming it and then for, it, just for fun and then just for fun um, that he's doing this intentionally from the start that he he sees the need to go through this process of transformation mm-hmm. well and that's what we get in the in the movie too we have that's yeah. one of the that's one of the speeches that they pull into the movie is him saying uh, my transformation will seem the better 
because I've been so low. Yeah. It will be the more amazing to my mother and my father when I change into the person that I will become when I take over, come into my inheritance. Yeah. And that's that's a key point that I was wondering about is, you know, the character of, of uh, Hal in the play is very calculated. Mm-hmm. Um, I, is, is Scott as calculating? I mean, he does have that, that speech. Mm-hmm. Um, but you almost, I mean. And he has the speech to his father, too, where he yeah. says, don't worry, it's going to be okay. Yeah. 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 And yet the when when the moment of transformation comes, I mean, he talks about, you know, falling in love. And mm-hmm. um, is that part of the, you know, his plan all along? Or, I mean, is that a genuine transformative moment for him? Yeah, there's a weird, because of that whole part, there's a weird um, overlap between the conversion from street slumming to mayor's son and yeah. from gay to straight. But I mean, something. Scott is never... He's never really gay. He only turns straight for money. Yeah. 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 But nonetheless, they, they overlap, right? His movement from the relationship with and it may not be a fully gay relationship but his relationship with mike which you know he's been close to him he's been intimate with him and then he leaves him for the girl whatever the sexual politics of it you know he moves from a relationship with mike to a relationship with a girl and that moment of conversion overlaps with his moment of conversion from uh dissolute youth to heir you know, heir to the mayor. And which is a different situation. Um, obviously in Henry the Fourth we don't have that movement of gay to straight, even if that is what we see here because that's not an element of the Shakespeare play. So it adds I don't know, it just felt like it was a slightly different um motivation. Um I, I wasn't quite sure what to make of that. Just because I'm not very familiar with mm-hmm. I guess in this case, Henry V, since that's when Falstaff is actually dead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> deintroduced is not a word. I, that's, that's actually you know, it's a pretty good word for how yeah. he's handled. Because because he he never actually turns up in Henry V. He just gets a line that he. We're told by some of his friends that he died, and we have the description of his death, and so he's introduced only to be only for us to be told that he's dead. So, what did you make of the kind of the dueling funerals where? You know, Scott's mm-hmm. dad, the, the mayor passes away. And by this point, Scott has disavowed all of his past life and is mm-hmm. married to Carmela. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're having a very proper stayed, f- rigid, yeah, proper funeral. Whereas uh, Bob has died from the shock of having been disowned mm-hmm. by by Scott. Scott. And he they his kind of street urchins throw him a funeral and are just kind of jumping on his coffin adjacent to the cemetery, like yeah. at the same Bob, time Bob, as Bob. Yeah. Well, presumably they can't bear, you know, he's got a, he's getting, it's very Elizabethan. He's getting a pauper's grave. Presumably mm. they can't mm-hmm. afford an actual funeral, uh, grave site, you know, and that's a plot in the cemetery. So he's getting the digging a hole at the side of the, the cemetery to, to put him in. Yeah. And they're getting sort of a wake slash funeral for him. Mm-hmm. I thought it was. I thought it was really effective. Mm. I yeah. Mean, I mean, I'm sorry. Well, it it the timing of it served to kind of underscore Scott's turn, mm-hmm. his betrayal, and at the same time, kind of just the the presentation of the funeral showed who was really the important community leader amongst their respective communities, like mm-hmm. people who were there for show versus people who were like truly mourning the loss of this connective tissue. Mm-hmm. But also, it was interesting because, like, in the movie, there's a lot of different things going on, but I couldn't feel, like, really angry at Scott. Even though it was played, you know, it was very cold, that scene where he repudiates Falstaff, and it is very upsetting. But he's, I felt, anyway, very warmly towards him up until then, right? He was very good to Mike, and very good with him, and very kind, and very responsible and even though he played the trick on Falstaff and Bob I just call him Falstaff because he's so clearly Falstaff 
played the trick earlier on on Bob, which is from the play of uh, setting him up and then stealing from him. That whole thing, which is that's taken almost directly mm-hmm. a lot of most of that from the from the Shakespeare. Um, you don't really feel like that was particularly mean of him. It just seems part and parcel of the way everybody interacts, or at least I felt that way. And then at the end, he's in the wrong, but at the same time, I felt that that funeral setup also sort of showed us why he couldn't be in that world. He didn't really ever belong there. It wasn't even just that he, you know, it wasn't just that he was a bad person for turning his back on them, but that it had always just been play acting for him and he wasn't going to be part of that group. He wasn't truly part of sort of what you're saying, part, part of that community. And and he didn't have the freedom to. And yeah, in the end, he couldn't be part of it. He couldn't stay with them. And I couldn't feel, I, I could feel sad for him and sad for the others, but I couldn't really feel angry at him even though what he had done was a betrayal. Because ultimately, yeah, he was... He was locked into something that he couldn't really ever get out of. Yes, and he, while everybody else was kind of in that life out of out of circumstances that forced that mm-hmm. on them, he chose, Scott chose it as, I don't know, p- personal education? Like, rebellion? It's never made clear exactly why he chooses it. I mean, as you say, Mark, there's... That's reasons for it in the Shakespeare, but but it isn't really clear why why he chooses to live like that in the movie for a while. Yeah, as a play, as just an escape, as a rebellion against his father. I don't know. And I I guess also um, it was sort of became clear in a way that it isn't in the play. I think what Bob wanted from him. I mean, Bob wanted was using him him, to some degree right as my heir and he he was very yeah explicit about it Uh you're you're my ticket out of here but at the same time if bob wanted him to take over being the heir apparent and the son of the mayor how could scott take up that role and still be connected to bob Uh like that wasn't that there was always a paradox there he was never going to be able to play both those roles the only time it really intersected was when the abandoned building they were um, Mm -hmm. squatting in was being raided by the police. Mm. And so Scott and Mike uh, hide under a sheet and are very comically pretending to have sex. And then Mm -hmm. Scott reveals himself to the police and like, you know, clearly uses his identity to get out of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas everybody else was being like actually pursued. And and there he, he and the police are clearly both play acting. It, it's made very clear that the police are like, yes, all right, sir, you can go on playing at being this criminal or this vagrant or whatever, but we'll nod and smile and yes, we'll we'll let you do whatever, but really we're taking orders from you because we know you're the mayor's son. It was very clearly artificial. And then the way he you know, dismisses them and, and acts, uh, it, he's not in any way in the same position that everybody else is. Yeah. Yeah. And so he can't, like, how Bob could think that he could take up the position that he's going to come to and yet still stay friends with Bob or give him a job or do like, I'm not saying that it's not a a heartbreaking moment when he repudiates Bob because it is, but, but at the same time, it, it, it could never have, you know, either he was trapped by that. If he was going to take it up and become the heir that he needs to be, then he also can't, be the guy on the street he can't be both yeah exactly what did you think about the the language the import so the thing about this movie that's different is that uh, from some of the ones we've watched is that it like in um 10 things or she's the man or whatever it took over the plot but other than a couple of very self-conscious lines it didn't bring in the language at all and then we've watched other straight at versions which of course are faithful to the language all the way through this one picks up on some of the plot, but not not most of it, and then imported some of the language and changed it. What did you think of that? I actually texted my friend. Um, you know, I said I can't tell if Keanu is trying to do a Shakespearean presentation or if he's just doing his kind of Keanu Reeves. Like mm-hmm. I, I can mm-hmm. act 
you know like mm -hmm. it's 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 low-hanging fruit to beat up on keanu reeves's acting ability but <laughs> you know that's that's kind of what i saw but no i to me i really saw it as code switching mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. and you know we could talk for hours on code switching and Mm -hmm. its nuances and what it implies but you know like you were saying all of the shakespeare really is the is the how falstaff uh scott bob you know like mm -hmm. that's where it is mm -hmm. it's within that community mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So except for that one scene with his father yeah yeah so code switching within like the context of that community is like very clearly important for its own reasons mm -hmm. and then with the relationship to his father that's like kind of I guess just a way of contrasting the the, the communities, you know, because mm -hmm. the, the, this this delivery we're, we're only associating with you know the street life, the hustlers, um, is then being contrasted, using to contrast to his dad's you know oak paneled office mm -hmm. and the money and the prestige and the the privilege, the ability that comes with that. Mark, what did you you commented on the language as we were watching it? Yeah, I I found it quite. Uh mesmerizing really um the the way that it sort of weaved in and out of the um lines from from the play um and the, into then very modern um contemporary speech patterns mm -hmm. uh and i found that quite compelling mm -hmm. you know and what i thought was interesting when you talked about keanu i thought what i hated in much ado in the way he read shakespeare I thought worked really well here because it was, it was intentionally stylized mm -hmm. artificial speech here. Um, whereas in, in much ado, um, the, the sort of contrast between the, the kind of, uh, clunky, uh, delivery that Keanu gave there against the really naturalistic performance of, uh, of Kenneth Branagh or everybody, everybody really. Um, what just made it sort of stick out like a sore thumb. But here, uh, it seemed to be, um, well, kind of intentional. Mm -hmm. Because when he goes into those speeches, they're already so stylized and standing out against the backdrop of the rest of the movie mm -hmm. that the fact that they're delivered in this sort of tonally odd, slightly odd way doesn't detract from their naturalness because they're already not natural. This is stylized. This isn't normal already well, so and, it didn't so it didn't bother me and i, I kind of noticed how it didn't bother me here even though it still grates on me so much and much ado and it's the same delivery yeah and in a certain way like it, the the artifice of the language just kind of reinforces scott's kind of artificial position within mm -hmm. you know his adopted community his his emotional isolation the distance that he does keep and will always have because he's not really more than a tourist there mm -hmm. yeah i mean to get sort of obvious about it in a sense he is play acting yeah he is play acting as something he is not and so he is literally play acting he's speaking lines from a play when mm -hmm. he's talking the way that he interacts with them he has to code switch into somebody else's words because they aren't his words now bob also does that and bob is not play acting in the same way though he too is playing a role um he's trying to play a role in Scott's life and just in general he sort of seems like somebody who's always playing a role in his life the whole making up stories and making him the hero himself the hero of the um, robbery and stuff plays to that well and that's that's kind of Falstaff's oh yeah for sure um, character as well mm -hmm. well and with regards to Bob the actor and I'm afraid I don't know his name off the top of my head even kind of switches between an, uh, an American accent and mm -hmm. not a British accent, but like a, an inflected accent, mm -hmm. you know, w with not significant consistency. Like it goes in and out mm -hmm. kind of like he kind of goes in and out of reality, tells stories circuitously, you know, with the whole four men, seven men. Yeah. Mm. Now that, and the, so the thing is, I also thought it was just, I whoever did the script adaptation parts there where they're trying to work the Shakespeare together, I just thought was, it was amazing because like that whole four men, seven men, that is all straight out of Henry the fourth, mm -hmm. that whole scene where he says, Oh, and he says, Oh, there were just two men a moment ago and, and all that, but it's not word for word. Like it's not, they didn't lift the whole scene word for word and just do it. 
all the way through where the Shakespeare wouldn't would be too out of place they've changed it and then so that it's like word one word in one word out and and replacing these and those with you and you know and things like that so that the language isn't so archaic and words that don't we wouldn't understand or change the stuff but then other ones are very much the same i thought it was really a fascinating job of of mixing it like the speech where um when he's talking to his father and his father says you know when i came back from france i i immediately looked at your cousin and i was just like oh he's so much better than you he's doing all these things and it lists off the stuff he he's doing in his political he, he manages in five acres and he's He's got a five-year plan for the force that even I would follow. And that is, uh, in the play, that's Henry IV talking about Hotspur, I think, actually. Um, but a, a cousin of uh, Henry's, of Hal's, and about how good he's been in the wars and what a good general he's been. So just like, it's exactly the same, except everything that's about the fighting has been replaced with a political thing. But only in like three words at a time bits. And then later Keanu says... Uh, Oh, you know, Mike, I will, I will get it to that. My, I will show my northern cousin that northern boy, this, that, and the other. And again, it's exactly the same as the Shakespeare, with just a couple of words changed and the name of the person changed, so that it, it isn't so totally anachronistic. Is there a term for that? I don't know. I have not seen that done very much at all. I mean, that's why it stands out to me so much in what we've watched and, and in what I've seen of how people do Shakespeare or do this kind of adaptation. It's usually either like take the plot and the characters, but dump the, the language or keep the language, but don't change it. This taking the language, but then changing it where you want it. I can't I feel like think we of could... another precedent for it. I feel like we come up with a great postmodernist term in the <laughs> in the vein of verisimilitude. Yeah, something like that. I'm verisimilitude trying... is one of my favorite words, and I had to describe <laughs> it to somebody the other day. And I said, basically, it's just truthiness. Yeah. You know that Stephen Colbert invented. Yeah, yeah. Something that seems uh, like it, it it's better than truth. It's it's more real than real. Yeah. Yeah, like that scene, that whole scene of of when Falstaff is t- or Bob is telling that story I'm just looking at the play here you know he says uh, oh I was fighting and um, Prince Henry says pray God you have not murdered some of them and I think Keanu says exactly that he said, nay that's past praying for I have peppered two of them two I am sure I have paid two rogues in buckram suits I tell thee what Hal if I tell thee a lie spit in my face call me horse thou knowest my old ward here I lay and thus I bore my point four rogues in buckram let drive at me what? Four? Thou saidst but two even now. Four, Hal, I told thee four. Well, if you go back and watch it, basically that's exactly what they say, but translated into modern English. So he doesn't say four, Hal, I told thee four. He says, four, Scott, I said it was four. You yeah. know? So obviously it's, it's, it's changed, but but really it's the same. And, and then Poins, who's clearly that guy, um, I don't remember what his name, Bob's friend, like the one who says, Oh, Bob, we've heard the chimes at midnight in that mm-hmm. first introductory scene. That's a line from the play. That guy's meant to be points, I think. When says, aye, aye, he said four. And then he goes on, you know, and says, oh, there were four. And it keeps, it, it, like, it, it was just, it, I've, I went back and watched some of it last night, just those scenes to kind of look at how, because when we first watched it, I hadn't reread the play. So I couldn't really tell. And then I went and read the play. And then I went back and looked at the to see how they did the night. I just think it was really quite brilliant. The meshing of of the Shakespeare with but with modern language. I guess in a certain extent that's really the heart of interpretation, though. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean in the sense of dramatic interpretation, because that's where you get, let's say, Iran, mm-hmm. but interpretation in the sense of I am a linguistic interpreter. Mm-hmm. A know, translation, is, in a sense. But at least to me, translation is more about rote. You know, it mm-hmm. it it, mm-hmm. it is um, obviously it's not verbatim, but it's verbatimish. Yeah. yeah, no, I understand Whereas, what you mean, as opposed to interpretation. So trying to get the essence of what's there. Yeah. So like translation is kind of about this 
almost legalistic rigor. What mm-hmm. you said is what I'm reporting versus interpretation, which is about um, maximum understandability. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yet still holding um, elements of it there. I mean, it's, it's changing into understandability, but without losing the strangeness. And I think that was what I found. So, you know, it was deliberately strange. Their language and their performance of it was deliberately off kilter from the rest of the movie and from what you would expect people like that to talk like, right? You, They were not... It was not in keeping with what you expected, and yet it was comprehensible. And so there was this walking this line between making the Shakespeare understandable but not making it familiar. Yeah. Completely. Sort of you know not the opposite but a different when we were talking about much ado about nothing i was talking about how natural and everyday so many of the lines felt even though they were pure shakespeare and you thought really was that actually what shakespeare wrote because it sounds so little like shakespeare and so much like what we would say normally this almost did the other thing it changed the words where it needed to but it kept it feeling strange yeah instead of making shakespeare sound familiar it made it understandable but kept it feeling stagey or yeah theatrical. yeah theatrical or, theatrical. or uh, stylized or something mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. anyway i just i i'm i enjoyed the movie uh, i thought the movie was interesting in lots of ways and i found it moving and things but i enjoyed it just for that even like even if i hadn't liked anything else just yeah. those scenes just the... i found really fascinating to watch so I thought that was the sort of most interesting and most well done part of the movie for me. So what are we tackling next? Mark and I were arguing about this because <laughs> it's sort of our choice, I guess. But I'm not sure we came to a final decision on this, but uh, well, you can pose okay, what he, you were arguing about to me then. Yeah. So, okay. So one possibility would be that we should go on to watch the Branagh Henry V because we've just watched, as it were, Henry IV and the Henry V does pick up on some Falstaff stuff. You have some some um, flashbacks. So that would be one possibility. The other possibility, as I was saying, we should uh, watch uh, a Hamlet um, and there's a couple of possibilities. Uh, but the reason I want to do a Hamlet sooner than later is um, at some point I would like to, to, to move on to uh, Slings and Arrows. Um, mm-hmm. And it would be good if we if we'd already done Hamlet by the time we came to that, because the first season is based around Hamlet, mm-hmm. but you doesn't you don't really see the whole play. the whole story really. It's just sort of thematically picking up on elements. No, you see seeds. You see seeds. All right. Well, based on those two, I think just for the kind of continuity of it, I'm inclined to say that we should do Henry V. All right. Well, let's do Henry V. As a closing matter. Since we did Macbeth and talked about some of the phrases in Macbeth that have made made their way into our mm-hmm. current speech, every time I say what's done is done now, I'm like, oh, yeah, Shakespeare. <laughs> um, also, the other day I said to my friend, I don't even remember why, like the context of me saying this, but I said, oh, it was because we just started a new um, like project at work and she was you know, saying she, how excited she was for to you know tomorrow and i said yes tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day she just looked at me and i was like it's from macbeth and she's like how do you remember these things <laughs> so you said well i have this podcast <laughs> uh, i know yeah. but it, they they're um they're applicable these things it's almost like he speaks to the human condition in well-turned oh, phrases henry the fourth has a very famous uh uh mm-hmm. discretion is the better part of valor Right. Is from Henry IV. There's actually quite a few lines. And I mean, even the we've heard the chimes at midnight we've heard is the actually a, pretty famous. Fairly, the things we have seen. Mm-hmm. Um, I just on Twitter just today, somebody uh, was talking about Eurovision and about, he said, I don't know if I can watch this. I might have to bite my thumb at the screen. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I just tweeted to him, do you bite, bite your, your thumb, thumb at your me, thumb? sir? Yes. <laughs> And he was very pleased that I knew the reference. I don't know why, but specifically, do you bite your thumb at me became like the go-to saying in my group of friends in ninth grade. Oh, yeah. Same <laughs> with me. Same. Like, it, and it, no, I, I bite my thumb, sir. 
do you bite your thumb at me, sir? I do bite my thumb, sir. <laughs> yeah, it was, and it was because we watched the Franco Zeffirelli production of Romeo and Juliet. Right. Hmm. You know, I feel like maybe I should choose that as my next movie. Uh, just, just because you keep referencing it. <laughs> well, because Franco Zeffirelli did what is in my book, the definitive production of La Boheme at the Met. And I saw it twice this season because I'm a little obsessed with it. Um, <laughs> I even tweeted and Facebooked uh, act two of La Boheme at the Met is life's like singular greatest pleasure. <laughs> uh, I hold by that it is the greatest experience you'll ever have. I'm in a Zeffirelli mood. Maybe we'll see how I'm feeling next. <laughs> All right. Okay. So we'll do Henry V and then possibly Romeo and Juliet. I, I think that's not a bad idea. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm John. I'm Avon. And I'm Mark. Thanks for listening to As We Like It. You can find more episodes and more information about the show at theextracurricular.com and find more about Avon and Mark's other projects at alliterative.net. If you enjoyed today, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes or Stitcher, as your five stars can really help us reach new listeners. You can reach us all on Twitter. I'm at Alliterative. I'm at Avensarah, A-V-E-N-S-A-R-A-H. And I'm at John Vox, J-O-N-V-O-X.